0: Quantum computing, fundamentally, is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalisation of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realise the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks, to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer. Join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy, Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast, available today from wherever you listen to
1: podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Health podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reach age 40... Or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career. Will give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this
2: is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech the Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Play right He's an assistant professor at Virginia Tech, Department of Biological Systems Engineering, and we've been talking about uh, how signaling networks facilitate plasticity and robustness in plants. Um, so we'll go into uh, what that means, and uh, you know, shortly. But uh, Clay, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, the invite to be here, Richard. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat with you today.
2: Yeah. So tell me, um, <clears throat> I guess in plain English, what is your uh, what is your work and your research involved? It's a better way to restate it.
0: Um, yeah. So my work is really trying to figure out how plants take in information from their environment and make decisions about how to grow kind of the future iteration of leaves or stems or fruits um, and how to deal with threats like pests and pathogens in their environment and um, try and do that in a way that, um, is expedited so that we can actually adapt plants faster than say the microbial pests and pathogens that they're having to deal with can evolve Um, or train plants to grow in new environments that they haven't experienced before as they they might be faced with in uh, places where climate change is going to be strongly uh, in effect in the near future so really trying um... to
2: uh sorry go ahead yeah, well, What's an example of maybe extreme examples? How do plants appear to sense and defend themselves or react to their environments? You know, maybe give like a very extreme example to show people some sure. of the possibilities.
0: Yeah, so uh, just recently actually published uh, from a group in Germany, um, potatoes don't grow well in hot environments. You know, that's why they grow very well in Idaho here in the U.S. and the northern climates uh, of Europe, but as these areas where they're normally growing just fine get warmer and warmer, the potatoes become less and less starchy, the actual tuber, the potato that we eat, becomes less and less uh, massive compared to the rest of the plant, and that starch gets converted into um, leaf and above-ground tissue so that the plant can capture more energy. Um, and grow larger above-ground tissues and less of that energy gets stored as starch in the tubers that we eat. Um, And so that's all through the sensation of temperature. So these plants are kind of measuring the amount of time that they've spent at a certain temperature and coordinating their growth of above-ground tissue versus below-ground tissue in accordance with that uh, change in temperature that they're feeling. And so we could, and this group from Germany did this, actually tuned the plant down so that um, it uh, accumulates that temperature signal more slowly and allows the potatoes to still grow with the tuber quality that we want as you know consumers of baked potatoes or uh, potato traders, um, while still, uh growing in a, a warmer environment, I think it was uh, in a greenhouse up to like 84 degrees, which it's pretty pretty warm for where potatoes normally like to grow. So by changing that signal that uh, potatoes are integrating about their environment, we can adapt the signaling system uh, to be more suitable to our changing environment or just generally to the the needs of humanity as opposed to, the
2: way that these
0: plants evolved um, initially.
2: So what are the, um, I don't know, the counterbalances? of the potatoes sense the temperature differently? Do they grow differently? Do they grow normally? I mean, are there any trade-offs?
0: Um, I mean, there, there's always a little trade-offs, but uh, it could be you just have to start planting the potatoes a little earlier, a little later um, in order to get kind of the optimum yield from the potatoes, but uh, I don't think they've done full field trials yet to really get to the root of where those trade-offs might exist. Um, But that's another kind of thing that my group is particularly interested in, some of these trade-offs that are built into the genetic program that um, plants have evolved with and how we can rewire these networks to avoid some of those trade-offs so one of the most um, fascinating things to me is that plants respond with two different defense pathways to insects versus microbial pathogens Um, and these two pathways insects versus microbes are mutually exclusive so there's some evolutionary contingency there that makes If one pathway is on, the other pathway must be off. So if a plant is challenged with both insects and microbial pathogens, which is often the case actually, right, these insects are full of microbes and maybe infecting the plants with microbes, Um, the plants can't respond to both at the same time. And so actually, Microbes and insects, to some extent, will take advantage of this and turn on the opposite pathway. So microbes will turn on the insect defense pathway and therefore turn off the microbe defense pathway. And so um, in that way, the microbes hijack the plant immune system in order to um, circumvent detection and circumvent the the normal defense pathway. So, things that, uh, as an engineer, I'm really interested in trying to figure out and be able to re-engineer some of these evolutionary, uh, uh, like the vestigial tail of of plants, right? Uh, Things that were built in from the very beginning of the evolution of plants that, as genetic editing tools come online, we can potentially change and make plants better at doing what they're doing because we're gaining the ability rapidly to engineer biology, and we don't just have to tinker anymore the way that evolution has done for millions of years.
2: I mean, the mere fact of understanding that um, you know, an attacking bug could use its microbes to attack the plant versus the bug physically attacking it. Or it could use the microbes in it, or the microbes in it could, you know, turn off certain functions in the plant to allow the bug to munch in the leaves unimpeded. Just that alone is a much better understanding of what's going on versus thinking, oh, well, this bug eats leaves and that's the end of it. Yeah. It sounds like you've yeah, that, the scope of what we understand, you know? Yeah, that
0: uh, plant pest and pathogen ecology is really a fascinating field. And as we're doing more and more sequencing of microbes that exist, on and within plants and kind of getting an idea of how the plants are actually detecting um, you know, the really complex mixture of microbes that they're having to deal with constantly is a fascinating
2: field of research right now. Do plants have a um, an interior microbiome or is it just exterior to them, like exterior to the root bundle? And Is there a different no, you know, they, set of microbes uh, that so live on the leaves? Right.
0: Uh, so there's endophytes, which are uh, microbes that live within plants, right? Indo and phyte as plant. Endo is inside and phyte is within plants. And so um, depending on the plant species, you, you might have quite a lot of endophytes. Others like our, our common um, model organism, Arabidopsis thaliana, does not have a lot of common endophytes, but the lactobacillus Um, other lactic acid bacterias that actually make pickles what they are and kimchi what they are are all endophytes these bacteria that live within the plant that we can select with really salty solutions in order to uh, preserve the food oh so like kimchi
2: the bacteria that ferment kimchi are an endophyte of the kimchi plant
0: yeah of, of cabbages um, so they're actually living on and within the leaves of the, the cabbage plant that you make kimchi
2: from. Well, that's interesting. So they're not, uh, and like, you know, bread, I guess the yeast that comes from, can be blown in on the wind or come from outside, right. but this comes from the inside. Yeah,
0: and the um, yeast that live on the surface of grapes that originally fermented wine is all just microbes that have uh, figured out how to take advantage of the plants that they're constantly coming in contact with. And you know, there's inevitably some some coevolution that's going on there. A lot of microbes have figured out how to make, or, you know, since the microbes and in plants inevitably share a common ancestor somewhere back in evolution, the pathways that plants have co-opted to be their signaling molecules, microbes share some ability to produce those signaling molecules. And so Um, some of these microbes will actually produce plant hormones and manipulate the plant signaling systems in ways that are beneficial to them. And that's really what we try and do in the lab is take advantage of some of that, some of these shared uh, pathways or shared signaling mechanisms that plants and microbes have in order to uh, break down the really complex signaling pathways that are built up in plants. And um, plants, for the most part, have quite large genomes. And throughout the course of plant evolution, the genomes of plants have duplicated many times. Uh, so most plant genomes are actually you know, three, four duplications of one original genome. So instead of having one copy of each gene playing a separate function, you'll have three, six, up to 30, 40 copies of each gene, which are doing slightly different things, but they're all um, sharing some sequence and sharing some function. So being able to pull out each of those 30 or 40 different copies of a single gene and look at it in isolation in a system that doesn't have the rest of those parts is really what, uh, what my lab is working on, trying to relate how these genes affect function in the plant and how each of those single copies of uh, a large gene family is what we call these 30 or 40 copies of each gene what each of those copies adds to that signal that the plant is trying to transmit and trying to uh, integrate from its environment in order to appropriately adapt to the place that it's growing in Does
2: what are sense? the ways in which plants uh, sure. what are the ways in which plants sense do you think they can see do you think they can hear or do they just well, go by you know, chemical gradients and pressure gradients
0: yeah, so definitely uh chemical gradients, pressure gradients, the fluxes of these chemicals, but we we do know I'm I'm you know, i will stay away from the uh plant neurobiology uh argument. Um if you haven't had Simon Gilroy on, you should uh have him on your podcast at some point. But uh okay. I will. I will. Plants can definitely see they You know, have photoreceptors. They they don't have eyes like we do, but they can detect whether light is being reflected from neighboring plants or whether it's coming directly from the sun. And so, in that way, a plant can detect if it's being shaded by another plant. If the light that it's getting is not of the highest energy wavelength, right? It will grow away from that spot to try and get out of the shade or just elongate all the cells in its stem in order to try and out-compete its neighbors.
2: What about artificial shade versus the shade from the canopy from another plant? Has that been studied to see if there's a difference in how the plant reacts?
0: Um, I'm not sure what you mean there. Uh, like artificial shade from just a, a fence or something?
2: Right. which if a plant shaded by right. leaves, we know how it reacts. But what if I just shade it with, uh, I don't know, a piece of cardboard or something? Yeah. I pop it up over the plant. Yeah. How and does so it react differently? That- that'll
0: definitely change how the plant's going to react because the plant is actually seeing the full spectrum of light that's hitting its leaves. And it's detecting blue light, red light. It's reflecting back green light, right? Um, But in the, the red part of the spectrum that the plant a neighboring plant's leaves would be reflecting that red light to the, the plant that we're talking about here. And when it senses that red light, it's, that's what induces that shade avoidance response. So when you have this ratio of red to far red um, light that's low, so when you have a, a high level of far red light compared to red light, that
2: shade avoidance response is uh,
0: going to be induced. So, well, think,
2: again, have we uh, maybe have we tested that? that yep. That's the only only mechanism. Maybe it's uh, you know, what if you put a green object the same color as uh, you know the plant above it, but it's artificial, like a plastic plant? Would it still have the same shade avoidance? or Would it have a different one?
0: I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm there's not more sure to it really than been just the done, color. But um, I think so long as the you know transmission spectrum looks like that through a plant canopy, but uh I believe it would would be that way. It would still induce that same shade avoidance response. But um Okay, what other you know, um there's, there's other there's uh, other mechanisms that, that plants use to to communicate with one another. Um going back to that defense pathway when the insect defense response is activated. Plants actually produce volatile compounds. And there's all sorts of volatile chemicals that plants produce to induce the defense responses of neighboring plants and say, I'm being attacked by bugs. Turn on your defense responses as well. So we can imagine um, engineering uh, plants so that we we could prime their defenses when uh, we knew bugs were going to be at the worst. Um, or we can also imagine priming development of plants or repressing, for example, the uh, production of flower buds on peach trees until we add some signal, give the plants some novel signal that they might not uh, experience normally to induce that new, new developmental circuit that we've rewired. So this is something that I think as uh, an engineer is a a possibility for improving the way that um, agriculture is currently done. We've had several times in the last few years huge losses in stone fruit crops because warmer winters are causing the flowers to come out earlier and then a hard frost Kills the entire crop. Whereas, if we can control these signals that are causing those flowers to open, we could say, okay, this is definitely not the time of year to start flowering. Let's wait and send the plants that signal later or uh, tune that pathway rationally, and delay that flower opening and bud production until uh, later points in the year.
2: So and that it, way we can so, avoid that hard frost. How, how would you modulate the plant's reaction to frost? I mean, it seems like a life-standing mechanism. How would you do it in such a way that it wouldn't hurt the plant, but it still could tolerate colder temperatures?
0: Um, so I'm not talking about like the um, protection mechanisms that plants have to, to colder temperatures normally. But when uh, buds have opened, and then a frost happens, it'll kill those fruit that would have formed.
2: Okay. So So, how are you you hoping to change the behavior then?
0: So if we can um, create a novel signal that would induce the formation of the buds. So instead of normal plant development happening, we put a repressive circuit on that bud development and wait until later in a warmer winter, so after that chance of a hard frost, and then add that new signal that would relieve that repression of bud formation and then allow the buds to develop after that chance of a hard frost is uh, has
2: passed. Okay, I got to make sense.
0: Yeah, so, so what- by delaying the development or tying some new signal to these developmental events, we could potentially do uh,
2: a service to to agriculture. How do you um, anticipate that plants are going to react to possibly higher uh, carbon dioxide levels and global climate change?
0: It's um, an interesting question. Some some plants might actually do pretty well. There's some evidence that uh, plants increase their root system mass, which for some plants, like potatoes uh might be a good thing, but of course, as I mentioned earlier, potatoes are pretty sensitive to temperature, so as we increase in c o two temperature inevitably must also increase, right so if we can adapt them to temperature but still still get that increased root biomass, that might be a good thing. but for cereal crops, right where We're not worried about the root biomass at all. We just want seeds. The uh, seed biomass, a lot of the evidence that I've seen uh, is not going to increase very much, but uh, there has been some some really interesting work trying to kind of disrupt that uh, carbon nitrogen balance that plants are trying to maintain by adjusting the amount of root system that they have, right, where they're pulling more nitrogen from. Uh, whereas the above ground tissue, their leaves, are where they're fixing carbon, and so by disrupting that root to shoot tissue ratio, we could could potentially adapt plants to uh, be more productive in the face of climate change.
2: So, um, well, I guess if you think about,
0: um, I, I think there's you know,
2: possibility horticulture in general. I mean, we've been modulating what the roots are exposed to tremendously, you know, through fertilizers yeah. and hydroponics and all kinds of growing systems. So maybe it's not so crazy to, to modulate what the leaves are exposed to.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, as much uh, any other, uh, as has been applied in the past uh, 40 years, you know, since the middle of the green revolution,
2: the uh,
0: amount of carbon
2: dioxide that will be increased might not be...
0: That dramatic,
2: I don't know yeah, any other um plant defense mechanisms that uh you're like shocked by or amazed by you think are really, really super cool
0: um, just the arms race, I think is one of the most fascinating things you know, as um microbes are growing they're you know doubling the microbes that we grow in the lab, double every cell divides every. 90 minutes for yeast or every 30 minutes for most, uh, bacteria, but plant cells are dividing on a much slower rate. You know, plants have maybe two generations a year. Most of our crop plants have one and the ability of plants to keep up with these rapidly evolving microbes is really, uh, fascinating. So interested in the future to uh, look a little bit more in depth at how plants are um, adaptable to these um, microbial threats.
2: Um, you know, from what I've gathered, plants are, uh, you know, chemical masters and they can make all these amazing chemicals, volatiles and, you know, uh, give sap yeah. you know, uh, chemicals in it uh, change the, I guess, you know, you can call it the taste or the, uh, you know, the the nutritional content or, you know, their own stems When animals eat them. They can make them poisonous to them. Um,
0: Yeah. I forget who said it,
2: but uh, somebody
0: said that plants are the best
2: chemical engineers. hmm. That's definitely (laughs) true. (laughs) Do we know, uh, do we know where in a plant that happens? Is it just systemically the plant's able to do that? Or is there a uh, pseudo organ or place inside the plant or is it just inside each cell oh, yeah. there's. they can make all these
0: chemicals there's all sorts of different compartments within the plant right there's the uh all the different organelles uh that most your e- eukaryotes have right the mitochondria but then plants also have chloroplasts and plants have these really large uh vacuoles and lysosomes, peroxisomes, all of these different membrane-bound compartments within their cells, in addition to uh, really specialized cells like trichomes um, and the cells in the cuticle of the leaf that can really accumulate lots of uh, lipids and waxes and things. So there's all of these really nice little compartments that plants have to do different chemistries whether they need a acidic condition or a slightly basic condition really uh, high amounts of reactive oxygen species to do some of these chemistries uh, is really fascinating how plants can get uh, all of these different chemical reactions to be coordinated in such a way that um, can produce these toxic compounds or signaling compounds or just uh, different ways of storing energy
2: okay interesting yeah so what's uh you said you were focusing on um i guess what the redundancy of uh, certain processes within plants but how many genes are, are responsible for creating certain uh, certain chemicals or yeah can you talk a little bit a little bit, bit about more of your focus what are you specifically looking at
0: yeah so uh we're really interested in um two chemical hormones. So these hormones, just like we have hormones that control our appetite and our metabolism and our growth and our moods, plants also have these chemical hormones that are being pumped around the plant constantly and are changing in amounts depending on what um, they're experiencing in their environment. So we deal with one hormone called auxin. And this is really a, a group of chemicals that all transmit this similar signal or slightly different versions of the same signal that coordinate plant growth. And so this auxin is flowing around the plant and in the plant stem cells, the tip of every uh, shoot and tip of every root, there's a group of stem cells that are perceiving this auxin signal. And depending on the timing and the concentration of auxin that, uh, and coordination with other hormones, that controls the way that these stem cells grow and divide and really uh, change their fate over time in order to produce new lateral roots or produce uh, tubers or change from uh, new branch branches forming at every, um, the tip of every shoot to becoming, um, flower buds, for example. Uh, and that's, you know, regulated by a lot of different hormones, but this kind of, some people would say master plant growth hormone auxin is involved, um, in coordinating that stem cell behavior over time in almost all of those cases. Right. And so this, signal is you know doing a ton of different things for the plant. And perhaps because of all those different behaviors or uh, perhaps in order to produce all those different behaviors, a really complex response network really of all sorts of different genes within the plant are required in order to create all of those unique behaviors that we see um, in different plants. It's, a, it's still a big mystery in the field how this network of different genes is coordinating these different behaviors because there's not um, absolute specificity for this one copy of the um, hormone sensor, for example, is required for forming new lateral roots. It's This is required to Uh, specify that a new lateral root can form from this initial stem cell. And then this gene is required in order to um, actually initiate the process. And these three genes play some role in there. If we knock each of them out, they have some effect on the timing. Um, So, you know, we've been doing all of this work trying to parse apart what this auxin signaling network is really um, able to do. And I think hopefully we're getting close to the point where we'll actually be able to rationally re-engineer this pathway in order to change plant behavior in the future. So that's kind of the, the broader goal of my lab is can we gain an understanding of these parts and how they interact to coordinate this plant behavior such that we can re-engineer
2: plant behavior. And then... one you know what I wondered is um, timing in plants. You know, like certain um, fruit trees take, you know, three years, five years, however long to bear fruit,
1: even if mm-hmm. they appear
2: to be full-grown. You know, how does the plant know, okay, how does the plant count the season? Oh, I'm, I'm three years old, now I can bear fruit, or I'm five years old. How do you think that happens?
0: ah, uh, that <coughs> inevitably is... Uh, Part of the molecular clock, so uh, all plants and all organisms have some sort of circadian rhythm, right? They're detecting the amount of light that uh, they're collecting every day and measuring the the length of each day, you know, in that way. And they're also measuring hot and cold periods, so they
2: can. They must have a memory that this you know, some many... kind of like abacus. Some kind of internal abacus some yeah. memory to know. Okay, you know, I've been around for three years, for three seasons. Now I'm ready to produce fruit or to bloom.
0: Yeah, and so I'm not uh very familiar with how exactly that that process works on uh, mm-hmm. ne- the maturation of fruit trees. But yeah, plants have some memory that's retained in one of those signaling networks, and you know, perhaps um it's just the concentration of a certain protein is increasing every year or decreasing every year, and once it gets down to a certain level, then the plant can actually produce flowers. and so that's actually uh, flowering locus C um, is a, a protein that does that and kind of senses as temperature um, decreases actually after the first year. So flowering locus C um, controls flowering and mostly biennial, uh, crops. So plants that will, or a lot of, a lot of weeds are also biennial. Um, so after one warm growing season, when plants start to sense a a cold period, that flowering locus C protein will actually get slowly degraded over time. And once the plant has experienced enough cold weather that Flowering locus C protein will get down to a certain level that'll actually relieve uh, repression from that flowering uh, pathway, Mm. and so you'll actually induce flowering after a cold period in in that case. But maybe that mechanism, but um, I'm I'm not an expert in in that. So
2: it was funny when you talked about circadian rhythms. I realized that. I don't think people appreciate how much they're like plants or appreciate how much plants are like people. I know know it's a very general statement, but, you know, (laughs) he's talking about all these plant behaviors and everything. I mean, like, you know, when you think of a plant, you think, oh, it's it's critical the day and night cycles, you know. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. critical to the plant's functioning. But we don't think that about ourselves. Let's say, like, I'm going to go to sleep really late and, you know, work the overnight or something like that. Or oh it's not important for me to get up with a second. I'll catch out. up
0: on sleep later. <laughs> yeah. I right, think there's more funny. and more evidence
2: that it is pretty critical you, you to think, oh, human for health a, too. For a plant it's critical. But person, ah, you know, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe if, if we looked at plants and what they do, it's it, it would inform us of what to do and vice versa, you know? Yeah. I
0: think that's really very very true, you know, and there's uh you know, a proven phenomenon plant blindness that if you show Uh, anyone, a picture that has thousands of plants in it and has one lion, for example, and you ask people what what that picture is of, say, oh, that's a lion. And no, there's actually an entire forest there. There are all of these beautiful plants, ginger, flowers, whatever. Um, They're all in this picture. But, you know, as animals, we're, we're tied to the animal or something. But really... You know, how many plants do we interact with every day? Are you sitting at a wooden desk? How many plants have you eaten today? We just hmm. tend to tend to brush them off but yeah, uh, I mean, they're absolutely critical um very very cool
2: biology to study so what what's um what's your big hope for the next you know couple of years what What would you love to uh to figure out
0: uh really Hope that we'll be able to uh, figure out some of those evolutionary contingencies um, that are built into how plants have evolved and be able to do some some proof of concept studies to show that we can remove these contingencies and improve the resistance of plants to pests or improve um, the performance of uh crops in the future so i really hope that uh you know we'll we'll gain enough knowledge to be able to rationally engineer um the simplest of behaviors and in crops in the future Mm. and be able to so one of the one of the aspects of my lab that i'm really excited about being able to translate the the knowledge that we can gain from really quantitative studies in the lab using Microbial systems and being able to really parse apart what's going on in these plant signaling networks, being able to directly translate that to how um, changing genes within a plant or mixing together genes through traditional breeding can actually give rise to different traits. Um, using the wealth of sequencing information that we have today, if we and um, you know, other groups have sequenced thousands of different varieties of many different species. Our model species, Arabidopsis thaliana, as well as thousands of rice genomes, um mm-hmm. hundreds, maybe a thousand different soybean genomes, tons and tons of different corn genomes. And if we can characterize some of these critical signaling pathways and each of the different genetic changes that exist in those thousands of different genomes, we can get an understanding of um, what genetic changes give rise to the strongest changes in the way those signals are sent or perceived. All right. So if we can look at these different genetic changes in our microbial system and be able to characterize how they function, how they're perceiving those signals or sending those signals differently, then we can go back to those plants where those maximally different functional changes exist and figure out how that difference in signal relates to the actual difference in the plant form and function. So I think by okay. by going about things in this way, we'll hopefully be able to um, more rapidly Engineer plants for adaptation to climate change or um rapidly evolving pests and pathogens and other challenges that plants and agriculture will face in the future.
2: gotcha well very good we're um we' just about out of time so what's what's the best way for people to uh, get in touch and ask questions and you know talk to
0: you sure uh I'm on Twitter. My handle is at r clay Feel free to reach out to me there. Be happy to uh, answer any questions. You can also check out my website um, on the Virginia Tech Biological Systems Engineering or Translational
2: Plant Sciences website. Okay, very good. Well, Clay, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Richard. Richard, I appreciate the uh, opportunity.
1: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age forty. I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials. Or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career. Or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.